This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. I'd like to invite uh, Kylie and Jenny to come and read the Bible for us. Good morning. The first reading today is from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. Jesus said, I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I live, leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us be on our way. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, therefore... The prisoner in the Lord, beg you to leave, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Today, when we hear your voice, deliver us from hardness of heart. Help us to put away everything that keeps us from persevering in your way. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please do be seated. Now, way back in 1987, oh, I should, before I start, there is a sermon outline that you should have received as you came in through the door. Uh, that should help you just check where I'm up to and a place to take notes if you'd like to. Now, back in 1987, Bruce Woodley of the Seekers and Dobie Newton of the Bushwhackers penned a little ditty called I Am Australian. The song has become so popular that former Victorian uh, Premier Jeff Kennett in 2011 even suggested that it should become the national anthem as a, uh, a, a swap for Advance Australia Fair. And it opens with that famous line, We are one, but... We are many. Thank you for not singing. <clears throat> and that sums up the noble dream of the song, doesn't it? That despite difference and diversity, there is in our land a deeper unity that we share. It's a dream that's haunted the modern world since the fall of the great empires in the mid-20th century. 
John Lennon imagined it in his anthem called Well Imagine. You remember this song, don't you? Imagine, bizarrely now sung at Christmas carols. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Well, it's a noble ideal, a grand sentiment. But how can many be one? Particularly in this Reconciliation Week, if we sing, we are one, but we are many, we are reminded that this is an unresolved tension for our nation. Well, you heard John Lennon's solution. We can be one if we are a little less many. Dissolve the borders. Be rid of religions. And apparently get everyone to sing cheesy songs. Be a little less local and a little more global. It's a rock star solution, isn't it? We are one, but we are many. How? How can the many be as one and still be the many? Now, this is not an abstract question. It's not a question of theory. It's one that's right at the heart of what it means to be a human being. How can I be properly me and yet live at peace with you? We need some kind of unity to live at peace with, some, with, with one another, something that unifies us. Yet how can we find a peace that respects our difference, our individuality and our freedom? Well, the modern world has given us four main options to solve the one and the many problem. Power, law, values, and money. Firstly, the simplest option, power. Well, what do you do? You just force everyone to be one. It's no accident that in this age of deep social divisions, we've seen the rise of totalitarian regimes. It's become more likely that uh, our countries in the world will become more totalitarian, despite what we know about the effects of totalitarianism. Difference is so frustrating. And the imposition of order does make for a kind of peaceful living. It makes the trains run on time, after all. The cost is the violent suppression of the individual. Now, we're seeing this in countries as diverse as the Philippines, Belarus, and Hungary, even in our time. So that's the option of power. And then there's the option of law. What do you do with the law option? Well, you invent a constitution that will preserve unity and make space for difference. And democracy is the best kind of constitution ever invented, the best system for doing this. But it has its weaknesses as well. By its very definition, democracy privileges the rule of the majority over the minority. That's its only principle. And that's all very well when the majority is happy to tolerate the minority, but when the majority decides that it doesn't like the minority well, then, it can be quite brutal. As we've seen in the last two decades, democracies can be taken over by demagogues or become gridlocked with disagreement. So then there's the third option, and that's the option of values. You can try to invent some universal values that a nation or perhaps all people can gather around. 
We used to say that certain behaviours were un-Australian. Do you remember saying that? Uh, we don't say that much anymore. It's a way of saying, look, there's a universal way of doing things around here and if you don't fit in, you need to comply to these values, these Australian, allegedly Australian values to which all people in Australia should assimilate. An appeal to human rights operates in much the same way. Now, I wouldn't want to disparage how much good has been achieved by the idea of human rights. And yet, the problem with the appeal to these alleged human rights is that they hang like some great blob in the air without any justification for them. They change and shift as history moves on. The values we have tend to shift with the fashions of the day. What one generation finds normal, the next finds appalling. We keep discovering new human rights to add to the existing ones that we then discover conflict with the ones we already have. So-called universal values don't seem to be that universal. So that's power, that's law, that's values. Well, if, that's, if we can't really make sense of those, if we can't find unity in those, what about, what about money? I mean, at least we can agree. We all like money, right? Isn't it something that will unify us? That's what we're left with after the other three have gone. We, we could all agree at least that money is good and that we all want more of it. Maybe in the end, buying and selling stuff is what we have most in common with each other. All peoples everywhere like to trade, like to have more stuff. Money talks, and it talks in many, many different languages. In fact, it's perhaps the only international language. We should just get the other stuff out of the way because money speaks for us all and to us all. Of course, the problem with money is that it does not unite at all. It deeply and obviously divides us from one another. Well, that's all very interesting, you might say, but why have I been talking about this on Trinity Sunday? I'm very glad you asked. Because it's the doctrine of the Trinity that helps us precisely with this problem of the one and the many. Let me show you how. Firstly, God is one. As you know, the Jews were passionate, were and are passionate monotheists. The whole Bible tells us that the true God, the God of Israel, is singular and unequaled. Worship him alone because he is one. There may be other claimants to divinity, but they are fictional. There is only one God, not many. There is only one who made the heavens and the earth. There is only one to whom human beings owe allegiance. And he is not divided into parts or personas. You don't get angry God on Monday and gentle God on Tuesday. There is only one God and he alone is God. That is what is the Israel learnt at the cradle. But second, God is three. The New Testament writers, remember, were passionate monotheists. They were Jews. But when they met Jesus, after he'd been raised from the dead, how did they respond? They worshipped him as God. Do you remember doubting Thomas when he was invited to put his hands uh, in the side and to examine the wounds of Jesus, the risen Jesus? Even he said at that point, my Lord and my God. 
And I don't think that was an exclamation like you hear people say when they're surprised. My God, it was, you are Jesus, you are divine, you are God. And when Jesus had ascended into heaven, they received his spirit, his Holy Spirit, his presence with and among them. And they recognized that his spirit too was God. You can see this in the passage from Ephesians chapter 4 that we read earlier. What's the most repeated word in the passage? Well, it's one, right? One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. These are all one, 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 one. They are not different ones. They are a unity of ones, a set of ones that belong together. There's the one spirit, there's the one Lord Jesus, and the one God and Father are united. They are one. And as we'll see, they give us their oneness. Their oneness is ours. We are united to them. But what makes this set of ones a unity? What is the secret of their unity? The Bible's answer is as profound as it is simple. It's love. God in three persons is a unity of perfect love. John puts it starkly in his letter. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, quite simply, God is love. And that doesn't mean that God is a vague, benevolent force, a kind of celestial Valentine's Day card. God is not the idea of love. We can say that God is love because God actually loves. God is a set of loving relationships. Father, Son and Holy Spirit live together in relationship with one another in what theologian Sam Albury calls a dynamic of love, of other person-centeredness, a dynamic of love. The best word to express this relationship is the Greek word koinonia, Koinonia, that's a word if you know, if you'd like to get a foreign word tattooed, that's a good one to have. Koinonia, I can provide the spelling for you. Um, koinonia, what does it mean? It, it means communion or fellowship, having things in common. God is perfect koinonia. The persons of the Trinity belong to one another and share in one another. Koinonia. Let's pause here for a moment and take in the view, gazing for a moment through the telescopic lens given to us by Scripture, through the insight given to us by God's wisdom, as we gaze at the very heavens, the source of all things from which they all came, from which they have their existence, their very being. That source, that being is from eternity essentially and utterly Love. You and I are made by a being whose entire disposition is to love. What we see when we gaze at the beauty and purpose of this world is an echo, a trace of the love which is in God, that holy and eternal love. We are not made, you and I, from the collision of the stars, nor do we emerge from the primordial soup from the brutal struggle of our genes to survive and reproduce. 
we are made from the love of the Father for the Son. Love defines existence itself, your existence. John Lennon was wrong in this and many other ways. Above us is not only sky, it turns out, but love. As uh, Dr. Timothy Keller says, if this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really all about. God is one. God is three. And three make one because of the factor that is in between them, love. That is the mathematical operation that makes three equal one in God. And that means life in God's world is not directed towards survival or acquisition or individual fulfillment as an expression of our ultimate purpose, but towards love. The purpose of your life and of mine is to love. The secret of human unity, the secret of human peace is found in loving one another. But how does that help us? Because the reality is that we human beings do not love as we are called to love. And that's where we began after all. Love does not mark humankind and so humankind is not united. And so we try to find other principles that may mediate our life together, make it possible for us to live without tearing each other apart, uh, to be united in some way and yet allow individuals their freedom at some sort of level Just telling us to love is a nice message, but not perhaps any more helpful than the words from I am Australian. But the God who is love has got more to offer than that. You can see that again in our passage from Ephesians chapter 4. You might remember that from last year when we looked at Ephesians, Ephesians is a letter addressing the issue of ethnic diversity in the church. How can Jews and non-Jews, Greeks, live together as Christians? They have different foods, different customs, different habits. They bring up their children differently. How could it work? But Paul says, what unites you is the love of God shed abroad for both of you in the cross of Jesus Christ, that you receive in the cross of Jesus Christ. From love, Jesus died for the sins of both Jews and Greeks alike. He's made then one new humanity out of the two. By his blood, Jesus Christ, who is, says Paul, our peace. He's healed the rift between peoples, by healing the rift between them and God. It's no surprise then that God would call them as his people to practice living in loving unity with one another since he himself has made them one by the blood of Jesus Christ. By the one faith and the one baptism into the name of the one Lord, they have become one body sharing one spirit and they've become one, one uh, together children of the one heavenly Father. The church of Jesus Christ then is to be an echo of the one who saved it. You and I are not divine beings with respect. We cannot love as they love in perfect communion 
And yet the love of God himself dwells in us and empowers us to love one another. We share in his koinonia. And so we are empowered by him to love. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat in the gallery of our church. There's a couple of people up there today. But if you've sat in there when one of our organists really lets rip, it's quite an experience because I I don't know if you knew this, but the, the bass pipe is up in the gallery. And so when you're sitting up there and they really let the bass notes go, the whole building and the whole gallery and you, your whole body, resonate reverberate with the sound of that mighty blast of air. You feel it as much as hear it. You and I are called to reverberate with the love of God, to let its power shake us and shape us so that it is amplified in us, transmitted through us. We are called, you and I, to be the kind of reality in our finite terms, here in earthly terms, that God is in eternity because he has filled us with his eternal love. And this is a very practical truth. Though it's an extraordinary truth, it's a very practical one. You can see what Paul does with it in Ephesians chapter 4. What's it to look like? He says, look, make every effort, he says, to to love one another, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How? We'll have a look at verse 2. Practice humility and, and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Love one another by doing that which is humble, that which is gentle and that which is patient, that which bears with the foibles and mistakes of the other, out of love the love that now fills you. How can the, triune, the church of the triune God, who is Trinity, live as one while it is many? Because we are going to pursue humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now let me focus this morning on just one of these. Humility. The love of God is surprisingly humble. Paul, in that great passage from Philippians 2, tells us about our humble Lord, Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself from obedience to his Father and for love of his people. We have a humble Lord who gives himself for the good and for the glory of the other. Are you and I pursuing a true and Christ-like humility? This means never being too good for any task. You may be, in the world's terms, greatly honoured. You may be uh, greatly uh, honoured with, you may have many medals and many degrees. You may be quite significant. You may be used to having people running around after you. But here amongst God's people, are you a servant? And how do you treat those who serve you, both here and elsewhere? If I'm to say anything about us here at St. Mark's, it is that we are far too used to paying people to do the supposedly menial things that need doing. And yet these things are an opportunity for us to echo the love of God. I think this too easily and we too easily and readily reflect the culture around us. We live in a culture where people don't even walk their own dogs. They pay people to do even that. 
Is this a lack of humility among us? We have a culture which says that important people are too busy for ordinary things. And yet there are also people among us who do, who do act with great humility, serving morning tea or putting the bins out each week. That it just happens, uh, I know who does that, um, and I, w- <laughs> I won't reveal who it is, but it's remarkable what they do and who that is. Are they people who teach children, who welcome on the door, who spend time with the sick and the old. This is the shape of the love of God that it should take among us. His love reverberates through his people so that people see what it is like to, to what it is like and know that we belong to him. We live out together our profound unity because we've been formed by the God whose unity consists of what? Love. And when we resonate and reverberate with the love of God, when we practice it, then we can show the world the way that we can be one and many at peace. Is that grandiose? Well, it's happened before. In his terrific book, Dominion, the English historian Tom Holland shows that it was Christianity proclaiming that God is love that provided the basis for our contemporary ideas of justice, freedom, equality and human rights. Though John Lennon was an atheist, he could not have imagined his world at peace without Christian ideas ringing in his ears. His contemporary, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, saw his commitment to civil rights for African Americans as a biblical imperative stemming from the love of God. So let us begin here in our patch of the world, this small corner, with these people that the God who is love has given us to love and let us invite God to do his work. Who knows what he may do in us and through us. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.